1 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 1. Then David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you and if it is of the Lord our God, let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in all the land of Israel and with them to the priests and the Levites who are in their cities in the common lands and let us gather together, let the, let, that they may gather together to us and let us bring the ark of our God back to us for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. And Father, we pray that as we look at what it means to bring the ark back, what it means for us, as Jesus followers. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us to have the right hunger and the right attitude toward your presence. Lord, we thank you that according to the words of Jesus, you are with us now. That, Lord, you desire to make yourself known even as we read and study your word. And I pray, Lord, as you make yourself known to us, Lord, we would respond to you for who you are. And that you would be pleased with our response. And that we'd be changed for good through your presence. Please, Father, we pray you meet us here. In Jesus' name, everyone who agrees says, Amen. Amen. So this section, starting in verse or chapter 13, really carries all the way through chapter 16. And it's really just one section that the author of Chronicles is wanting us to see of how the Ark of the Covenant is brought into Jerusalem. So all four chapters really speak of that, that main thing. Now don't worry, we're not going to go through all four chapters this morning. We're going to look at about two and a half of those four chapters today and the other next week. But it's important for us to see what this is. Now some of you, if you don't have a church background, you might think, what is, what's the Ark of the Covenant? If you might remember the movie from the 80s, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Anybody see the Indiana Jones movie? How many of you have seen that movie? You heathens have watched that heathen? I can't believe it. No, it's a good movie. So you've maybe seen that, the Raiders of the, the, the Lost Ark. Well, the Ark is, is one piece of furniture that's part of this holy place. It's also part of this uh, in the Holy of Holies. It's also part of this whole kind of um, thing called the tabernacle. There'll be a, a, a picture on the screen. I apologize if you can't see it very well. But the tabernacle was something that was designed by God. God gave specific instructions to Moses to design this tabernacle. I mean, the sort of fence you see around the outside. There was a specific way as he was supposed to make that entire fencing, that entire boundary. Even the, 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 the clips that would hold the poles together, God gave specific instructions. All the bits of furniture within the tabernacle had specific uh, uh, reasons for the way that, the, the, that they made the... The, the, the Holy of Holies, which is kind of the, 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 the room within that room uh, there. <clears throat> the way they made that, that was all specified by God. He had said to his people Israel, this is part of my covenant uh, with you, that because I'm going to be with you, this is how you're going to experience my presence. Now, if you look at the next image, you'll see that there, there's this kind of the tabernacle in the middle of all these tents. And what was happening was, as God delivered the Israelites from slavery, they were slaves in Egypt, He delivers them from slavery, as they're traveling from Egypt to the promised land, the land of Canaan that God was going to give to them, they were, it's a, a, a massive camping trip. It was supposed to take about a year, it took 40 years unfortunately, but it's this massive camping trip. And in the middle of their camp was the tabernacle. And it was there on purpose. God, God, again, specified, I want my tabernacle right in the middle. He wanted who he was and what it meant to be with his people at the center of their lives. Not just their worship, but their whole lives would be about having God at the center. Now, you, you see in that, that, that image that there's this pillar of fire coming down. And God had led the children of Israel through the desert with this pillar of fire by night and this pillar of cloud by day. And that was a representation of His presence. And, and so what we see here with that image is that God is there, and His presence is not just sort of everywhere in the camp, but specifically He makes His presence known, though we do know God is omnipresent, He's everywhere at once, but God makes His presence known there in the tabernacle, specifically over the holy place, and even more specifically, over the Ark of the Covenant. 
Now the next image is probably even harder to see. It's this ark. It's kind of hard to see. But basically ark means box. And that's what it was. It was a box that was made of a specific kind of wood that was covered inside and out with gold. And you notice the poles on the outside? Those poles were, again, made of wood, covered with gold, and those poles remained in the tabernacle, or I'm sorry, in the uh, Ark of the Covenant, so that the Ark could be carried. God gave very specific instructions about how this whole tabernacle was to be taken down and carried by the Levitical priests. See, those two, those sets of wings kind of pointing towards the, the inside of the, of the Ark, or kind of covering the top portion of the Ark. Those are angels, or what we call cherubim. And the cherubim are there in a sense to show that, 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 that what happens at that, on that top lid of the ark, what's called the mercy seat, is the most holy thing happening in the tabernacle. In fact, it's so holy that we couldn't look on it. No one could look on it. The angels had to cover it with their wings, so to speak. In fact, you, you may or may not know this, but in that sort of tabernacle, in the holy place where all this furniture was, and then in the very holiest of holy, that place within the, 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 the veil of that holy place, where the, tap, where the Ark of the Covenant was, in that place, only one person went into that place and only one time of year. It was the high priest on the day called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And he would go into that place... And he would, he would apply the blood of a perfect lamb to that place. And that's where God would receive that sacrifice. And atonement was made for all God's people. It was when, in a sense, all their, their, their sins were washed away or covered up, really, literally covered up. In fact, it was such a, a big deal that they used to tie a rope to the high priest's leg and they put bells around his, his, his garment so that as he walked in, if they could hear the tinkling of the bells, they knew he was okay because it wasn't unusual for the high priest to go in there and all of a sudden, boom, he drops dead because of the holiness of God. Now, we, we see this and we hear this and it's important for us to understand this because it fits into the narrative we're going to read today. But it's also important for us because we tend to, as modern Western Christians, not have a very good idea about the holiness of God. If we have heard preaching on the holiness of God or, or heard people talk about the holiness of God, it, we, we kind of see it as God being just kind of maybe grumpy or, or petty or perfectionistic. And we see it as almost like a character or a personality flaw. But nothing could be farther from the truth. When we talk about the holiness of God, we talk about the fact that God is perfect. Something that we, even when it comes to so people who study linguistics and language, people who study philosophy say, well, how do we define perfection? Well, that's the whole point. We can't. God himself is perfect. No flaws. Pure goodness. And so understanding this as the background, hopefully this will help set the stage for what we're going to see. Because what we're going to see in these chapters is the fact that the Ark of the Covenant, it represents God's presence. And God desires to dwell in the midst of His people. And God is not ignorant of the sinfulness of His people. God doesn't choose to dwell with His people because His people are so great. Because they work really hard to get it right. That's why He chooses to dwell with them. No, that's not why He does that. He chooses to dwell with them because He's good and He wants to change them from the inside out. So what we have here is a scenario where, if you remember the whole context of 1 Chronicles, 1 and 2 Chronicles, they're one book in the Hebrew Bible at the very end of the Hebrew Bible, meant to be a summation or an application of all that God's done in Israel's history. As we've said several times before, Chronicles is really the author writing sermons about Israel's history. And because of that, he's less concerned about getting things in a factual order. He's less concerned about all the details of every, uh, of every story. He's more concerned about knowing how this applies to us in our relationship with God. So let's pick it up in verse 13. Let's follow the narrative as, as it happens. We see in, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 13. We see in chapter 13, David seeking to bring back the ark of God. 
We read the first three verses. He had said, hey, let's go get the, uh, the ark of God and bring it back to us. Verse 4 says, Then all the assembly, that's all of Israel, said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. And so David gathered all Israel together from Shihor in Egypt as far as the entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim. Now, again, we don't know these places uh, off the top of our head, but what he's saying here is every edge of the border where all of Israel dwells, let's all come together and be part of the celebration to bring the Ark of God into the new capital of Jerusalem. Now, this is a good thing he wants to do. The the, the fact that David's saying, let's be unified around this task is a good thing. It's a good thing to bring the thing that God has designed and designated to be the place that represents his presence among his people. Where he, that, that kind of conditions how he will dwell among his people. It's good to bring that back among God's people. It's a good desire. And and I see in this a a parallel to what is happening in the Western church today. There is a desire for us to move, to not just be stuck in formality. It's it's, it's a trend that's been going on uh, since the Reformation, but it's really kind of accelerated in the last, I'd say, 50, 60 years. Where in Western Christianity, we're less concerned with form, we're more concerned with experience. Because we believe in an omnipresent God who wants to make his presence known to his people. Therefore, we want to pursue the presence of God. We want to experience God in our midst. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. The problem is, as we'll see, is we make some of the same mistakes as the Israelites made in this day. Look at verse 6. And so, and David and all Israel went up to Baalah, to Kirjath, which is uh, to Kirjath Jerim, which belongs to Judah. To bring up from there the ark of God the Lord, who dwells between the cherubim, where his name is proclaimed. And so they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. Then David and all Israel played music before God, and all their stringed instruments with singing and harps, and stringed instruments with, uh, on tambourines, uh, and on cymbals, and with trumpets. So you see this really kind of glorious situation. These guys are literally having a parade. They go get the ark, where it was situated at the time, they think, let's bring this to Jerusalem, and they do so with just acts of worship. They're just singing, they're celebrating, that's a good thing. They're enthusiastic about what God wants to do. Interesting that they put it on a new cart. What's interesting about that is there, there, that was a, a, a kind of a pagan custom, actually. Because what the pagans would do is when they would take their gods, little g, their idols, when they would move them from one place to another, they would only move them on a new cart. So in a very real sense, they're kind of, um, they're kind of doing what the, what the pagans did. They're imitating what the other false religions did in wanting to bring their God in. And so as they do this, here's what happens, verse 9. It says in verse 9, And when they came to, to Chidon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. Now you, you can kind of picture this. They're, they're, there's a new cart and that... Uh, uh, Ark of the Covenant's in there. It's a holy item. They're wanting to be careful with this holy item. And as the oxen are bringing this forth, there's a threshing floor that means there's wheat and stuff on the ground. The oxen probably kind of turn sideways. The thing begins to, to wobble. And what does he do? Whoa! We don't want to see the Ark fall. And then we see this in verse 10. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and he struck him because he put his hand to the Ark and he died there before God. Whoa. We read this and we think, what is going on? David was doing a good thing, wasn't he? He was unifying God's people around this task of bringing the ark of God back in the midst of God's people. But then Uzzah makes this deadly mistake. Now now here's what's really going on here. We need to understand. The scripture says clearly about how the ark is to be transported. It says in the book of Numbers, right? And David, the, the Israel would have had access to all this. David would have had access to this. Here's what it says in the book of Numbers. And Aaron and his sons, that's the priesthood, 
when they have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Koath, those are another part of the Levites, they shall come and carry them, notice, but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. So God says, here's the instructions, okay, so that you recognize how important this is, how, how set apart this is. How unique this is. How, how this, this Ark of the Covenant, how this holy of the holy place is the only way that you can connect with me so that you recognize that. When you carry it, have these poles that you carry. Do not touch the Ark itself. There's all kinds of instructions if you want to read this stuff. You can see they had to cover it with certain colors, cloths in a certain order. Only certain priests could carry certain things. It was a really big deal. Now, there's some things we need to understand about this. Is that the reason this is happening is, is, is found in what we see in verse 6. Where when, when the author, and the author wants us to see this, when he um, describes the ark of God, he says the ark of, of, of God, the Lord, that's Yahweh, who dwells between the cherubim, where his name is proclaimed. In other words, he's kind of giving us, the readers, a hint. This is not about some ornate box. It's about the very character and nature of God. And what had happened is Uzzah, and we'll see later on, this really represents the mistake that really all of Israel was making. Uzzah had for, forgot this, had neglected this. It also tells us, in, in, what we can see in the, in the processional, a, a really important lesson for us, that this enthusiasm that they had, it's a good thing, but it doesn't necessarily represent righteousness. Just being enthusiastic about God doesn't mean you're right with God. This is important for us to understand. Because sometimes we can make that mistake. We can think, oh, everyone here is excited about God. I like being with these people. I'll be excited about God. And if I'm excited about God, maybe then I'll be right with God. That's not how it works. And it's really important for you to understand this. Especially if you're new to this Christian stuff, if you're thinking, okay, if I'm going to be a Christian, I need to just kind of imitate everyone around me, be careful with that. There, there's a place for imitation, don't get me wrong. As, as Jesus' followers, we're imitating Christ, and the only way you learn to do that is to imitate others who are first imitating Christ. But so, so imitation has its place, but don't make the mistake of thinking, hey, if I'm just enthusiastic like everybody else, I must be right with God. It doesn't work that way. See, see, here's the here's the, the the problem. When we attempt to help God do what He's promised to do, it kills us every time. It only brings death. We'll see in a, in a few minutes that there's a place of for cooperation for us, but. That's not the point. The point is, God has said, this is the way I want this to be. This is, this is so that you can know something about who I am. And when we ignore that, we do so to our peril. See, the mistake that we make is, we tend to think that if, I, if it feels right to me, if it seems right to me, it must be okay. This is the big mistake that we make all the time. In fact, interesting, in Psalm chapter 50, God addresses what he, whom he calls the wicked, or the psalmist calls the wicked. He says, but to the wicked, God says this, and here's one of the things that God says to the wicked. The things that you have done, uh, uh, these things you have done, he lists a whole bunch of things he had done that weren't good. These things you have done, and I've kept silent, and you thought that I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you, and I will set them in order before your eyes. This is the big mistake we, we, we make. I remember talking to a family member once about what God was like. He goes, you know what? I think when we get to heaven, we're going we're gonna to see God. And, he, and we're going you know, to see him like, what, what do you think? He says, he's going to look just like us. God's like us. No. No. Now, there is a truth that in one sense, we're like God. We've been made in the image of God. But that is so broken now. It's so, we're so damaged by that, which is why the world's so messed up. And we can't even see that in each other the way we need to. No, 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 there's none like God. And if, if we don't understand that, if we don't see that, we, we, we really can't worship. Now, you might think, okay, John, that's all kind of heavy and harsh. And I think it's just Old Testament stuff. But listen to what Jesus said to Peter. 
when Peter thought, no, Jesus, you can't die on the cross. There's no way I'll let that happen. Here's what Jesus says to Peter in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus turned to Peter and he said, get away from me, Satan. Cool. It's pretty harsh. I've never called any of you Satan, at least except in jest. He says, you are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. That's what Jesus says to his apostle. To Peter, whom he personally chose to follow him. There's a massive danger, guys, for us to think that whatever we think or feel about God, if it feels right, it must be true. Man, that is dangerous. And don't think that we can't make the mistake because, oh, we go to church and we hear the Bible. See, David had to go through this. And, and, and I don't know how you're feeling, but we can see how David's feeling right here in verse 11. And it says, And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Therefore, the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day. And he said, How can I bring the ark of God to me? How's David feeling? Frustrated. Absolutely frustrated. God, what are you doing? We, we can understand this, can't we? I, I think what David was probably feeling is like, aren't I good enough? Haven't I done enough? Have you ever felt that way? If you feel that way as a Christian, come on, God, how come this bad thing just happened? Aren't I doing good enough? Have you ever felt that way? I have. I think David probably did. But it's interesting, what happens next? The author of Chronicles wants us to see this. Look, look what happens next in verse 13. So David would not move the ark with him into the city of David, that is into Jerusalem, but he took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom, great baby name by the way, in, the house of, uh, in his house for three months. And what, what does it say happened? And the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Do you see what God's doing here? God's making it so clear to Israel. I'm not wanting to destroy you. I'm wanting to bless you. God's confirming his desire to bless. But we don't get to tell God what's best for us. If you, if you are a parent or, 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 or in charge of a, of a toddler or ever even did sort of, you know, child mining for a toddler ever, you know that they think they know what's best. And you know they don't. And it's quite cute and comical sometimes. But can also be quite serious if they don't get it through their head that, no, you don't know what's best. We know what's best. You have to do what we say. There's a danger Potential danger involved if they don't get that. How much more with us and God? Think of it this way. We're kind of like candy floss. We're, we're basically not, not tons of substance, a little bit sweet, not usually healthy in high doses. <laughs> but you know what else we're like? Candy floss, as soon as you put it next to water, what happens? It just dissolves instantly, doesn't it? Because the nature of candy floss cannot combine with the nature of water. We, as broken human beings, cannot combine with the nature of God unless he does something supernatural, which we'll come back to in a minute. But this is the, the thing that happens with David. He wants to bring the ark back in. It's a good desire, but there's a, some serious lessons that he and Israel need to learn. Now, here's what's interesting. In 1 and 2 Samuel... These two events, these chapters, what happened there with, uh, uh, with Uzzah and uh, what we're going to see now in a second in, in uh, chapter 14. In 1 Samuel, these two events are reversed. Now 1 Samuel is probably historically correct. That what happened, in, 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 for our case, in chapter 14 of 1 Chronicles actually happened before what we read in chapter 13 of Chronicles. But the author of Chronicles switches the order on purpose. This is why. He wants us as readers to say, listen, don't forget, the whole reason I'm writing this to you guys is so that you see that God wants to bless his people through his chosen king. So here's what happens next. David wants to bring in the ark of God, but we're reminded that David was helped by the God of the ark. Look at verse 14, or chapter 1, sorry, chapter 14, verse 1. It says, Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messages to David and cedar trees with masons and carpenters and built him a house. And so David knew the Lord had established him as king over Israel, for his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. Then David took more wives in Jerusalem, and David begot more sons and daughters, and then he names the, some of the sons and daughters that were born there in Jerusalem. 
Now, it's interesting here. David receives help from this neighboring king of Tyre. And the king of Tyre was definitely politically motivated because to get to the Mediterranean, they had to go through Israel. Tyre had to go through Israel to, to, uh, to get to the Mediterranean for trade. So they would have to be in good, uh, uh, good state with trade. He's recognizing that, that, that David is the king. And so he doesn't just say, hey, can we make a deal? He sends the, the items for the deal. Here's the best wood in the area. And it was. And here's the best carpenters and stonemasons, and they were. And we want to build a house for you. And what does David do? Does David say, I rock. I have made it. No, he says, God's doing something here. This provision is from God's hand. He receives material provision and acknowledges this has to be God's hand. Now this is important. It's important because this is what the, the author wants us to see. This is God's hand. God's doing this. But also, it's important considering the fact that here there's no comment on, on, on the fact that David had more wives and multiple children. This is important. For two reasons. One, we, we, we believe that, that what the author is trying to, to show is he's trying to compare Saul with David. Saul, the first king of Israel, fails. His whole family diminishes to almost nothing. David succeeds. His family multiplies. That's probably the picture he's saying. But he ignores what the scripture clearly says in Deuteronomy 17, 17, which is that a king, God says, a king's, his kings shall not multiply horses, gold, or wives. This is important for us to see because it's not God going, well, that's no big deal. This is a fact that God shows, is showing us, the scripture is showing us that what God does in bringing his presence to us is grace. Because even the best king Israel had, before Jesus, of course, even the best king Jesus that, that, that Israel had failed miserably. Now, what, what happens also, though? We're seeing how David was helped by the God of the ark. Verse 8. So now when the Philistines heard that David was anointed king over all Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, and David heard of it, and he went out against them. Then the Philistines went and made a raid on the valley of Rephaim. And what does David do? Verse 10, and David inquired of God. He prayed, saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? Now this is really interesting because the scripture was clear. God said clearly to his people, the land of Canaan is yours. Defeat everyone who's there. So as the Philistines kind of come in, about Philistines kind of came into the land of Canaan the same time Israelites came in the land of Canaan, so there's competition for the land. But obviously the, the, the mandate from God was you can defeat them too. But David in his humility says, God, is this really what you want me to do? Am I actually supposed to go to this battle? And so what happens? God says, verse 10, Then the Lord said to him, Go up and I will deliver them into your hand. Now we, we don't know how God communicated to David. It was just a sense that he had or a prophetic word through somebody else or, or just you know, words directly to David. We don't know, but God communicated to David, answered his prayer, and it says, so they went up to Baal Perazim and David defeated them. That's the Philistines there. And then David said, God has broken through my enemies by my hand like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, they, they called the name of that place Baal Berezim. And when they left their gods there, David commanded that they would be burned with fire. Now, here's what happens. David prays, and God gives him an encouragement. And what's David do with that encouragement? He turns it into obedience. Lord, you said destroy idols, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to destroy these false gods that we left behind. This is really important, because we so undervalue prayer. I mean, I think sometimes we, we put the value of prayer of God wants to do this stuff ministerially, and he does. God wants to use our prayers to, to fulfill his plan. There's no doubt about that. It's an amazing privilege that we get to be connected with God to see him use, to fulfill his plan through prayer. No doubt about that. But you know what else? God wants to show himself to us. You, do you know how you primarily experience God? Through praying and seeing God answer. So when we don't pray, guess what we don't do? We don't experience God's presence. We don't. And so the author of Chronicles has wanted us to see this. Look, David messed up, yes. But the truth was, the God of the ark was helping him. And the God of the ark will help us. In fact, we get another example of David praying. Verse 13, then the Philistines once again made a raid on the valley, and David inquired again of God and said to him, 
Uh, and God said to him, You shall not go up after them. Instead, circle around, come upon them in front of the mulberry trees, and it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees that you shall go out to battle, for God has gone out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. Now again, we don't know how God answered. It seems the way that's written, it was probably through a prophetic word, but still we don't know for sure. But what's really cool is when it says David inquired again, it literally could be translated David inquired constantly. It was David's habit to pray. I, I, I want to confess, that after 32 years of being a believer, my prayer life is still not that great. I'll just be honest. But I, I can say this, after 32 years of being a Jesus follower, man, does God answer prayer? And does God show himself through prayer? And when I'm wise enough to pray until I pray, to press through in prayer. I pray most days, but sometimes if I'm honest, I just kind of pray to, to know, okay, I feel better in my conscience. I said my prayers today. But when I take the time to press in and pray, when I stop during the day and say, Lord, I know I prepare Bible studies every week, but I really need you to speak to me afresh, and I wait on the Lord. When I, and, and, and know that I'm going to have a counseling appointment, and I take the time to get on my face before God, and I say, God, I, I've talked to hundreds of people over the years, but I really need your wisdom about what you want for this person. And when I am on the bus home or driving home, and I'm in that bus, and I'm praying, Lord, help me serve my family and get home, because all I want to do is serve myself. I have to say, God is faithful to answer every single time. Sometimes it's not obedient. We'll talk about that in a second. But God is faithful to answer. See, this is what happens with David. David prays the first time. God gives him an encouragement. In fact, this is the kind of encouragement we get towards prayer. Listen to this. 1 John chapter 5. Talk about an encouragement to prayer. 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 to 15 says this. John writes, I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Listen, so that you may know you have eternal life. We sang a song of confidence today, didn't we? We know this to be true. And we feel this to be true. We know this to be true. We have confidence based on who Jesus is and what the scripture says about him. And we are confident of this, John writes, that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our requests, we also know he will give us what we ask for. That's the confidence that we can have in prayer as believers in Jesus. Are you that confident in prayer? God wants to encourage your confidence in him as you pray. He really does. So God encourages David, but then David continues to pray. What happens? God directs him specifically. I love this. I love the fact that God just gives him specific direction. Shows him where he's supposed to go. Makes it clear about what he's supposed to do. In fact, what happens? God gives him this specific instruction. What does David do with it? He does what God says. So David did as God commanded him. And they drove back the army of the Philistines from Gibeon uh, as far as Gezer. Then the fame of David went into all the lands and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all the nations. He obeys God and what happens? God exalts him. This is really important. God spoke to him specifically as he continued to pray. But listen, the answer came with obedience. This is really important. That if we're seeking God and we're wanting to experience His presence in everyday life, we've got to be willing to do what He says. God, what do you want me to do in this? I'm not really sure what the right way is to move forward. And so we go and we spend time in His Word. And we get direction. We go, oh, I feel better. And then we go off and do whatever we want. That's called quenching the Spirit. <laughs> it's, it's called running from the presence of God. Not experiencing the presence of God. David didn't do that. Again, listen to the, the, the confidence, the exhortation we have from Jesus himself about prayer. Jesus wrote in John 15, if, if you remain in me, let's keep your faith in me, and my words remain in you, you will ask anything you want and it will be granted. Jesus said that. When you produce much fruit, you are true, my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. I have told you these things that you may be filled with my joy and your joy will overflow. Is that our experience on a daily basis? 
Probably not. Why? Because we're probably neglecting access to God's presence through prayer. How am I saying it to make us feel guilty? I'm just saying, let's stop being stupid. <laughs> How foolish of us. Come on. If I gave you my debit card, my bank card, and I said, okay, here's my, my bank card. Um, here's the statement you can see. There's, there's 400,000 pounds in my bank account. There's not anywhere near 400,000 pounds in my bank account. <laughs> I don't think there's 400 pounds on that guy. But I said, Here, here's, my, here's my bank card. Here's the bank statement. It proves what's in there. Here's the PIN number. Help yourself. You, would you be excited and go, this is amazing, and then tuck that away and just kind of maybe read it once a day? Or, or maybe sing about it on a Sunday? No, you'd be going to every cash machine you could find. No, I give him permission. Oh, feel guilty. <laughs> the reality is this. Listen, the reality is this. This is what the Lord's done, to, done for us in Christ. He said, you have access to my presence. See, the author of Chronicles wants the readers to see. Remember, the readers, in fact, I forgot to say this in the beginning. It's a really important point. The, the, the people that the, the author is writing to had never seen the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, there's good evidence that even though the temple get, got rebuilt and Jerusalem was being rebuilt, that's who he's writing to, those people have gone back to see these things rebuilt, that the Ark wasn't there. That it was taken by, when, it was, uh, when they went into captivity, it was taken by the Babylonians and destroyed or sold off or whatever. That they didn't have that. And it's almost like the author saying, you don't need the box. You have access to the presence. How much more are we, this side of the cross? Now, the first part of verse chapter 15. So we've seen David wanted to bring in the ark of God. Had some problems with that. But we see, also see David was helped by the God of the ark. That God is trustworthy. So then the author brings us back to how David got it right in verse, or chapter 15, verse 1. It says, David built houses for himself, or just you could say building for himself in the city of David. And he prepared a place for the ark, and he pitched a tent for it. And this is a tabernacle, so having a place like that isn't unusual. And David said, no one may carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister uh, before him forever. And David gathered all Israel together at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of God, <clears throat> the ark of the Lord, sorry, to its place for which, which he pre had prepared for it. Now drop down to verse 15. It says, And the children of the Levites bore the ark on, the, on their shoulders, the ark of God on their shoulders, by its poles, as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. Do you see what's happening here? David knows they need the ark. They need God's presence. So what is he doing? He's bringing in God's ark, God's way. This is the most important thing. He's bringing God's ark in, God's way. He's doing what we read earlier in, in Numbers 4 verse 15. He's saying they have to carry this. Only the Levites can carry this. It can't be anybody else. But he's also fulfilling something specific that we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 12, Moses, or God speaking through Moses, says this, But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place. There you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and ye shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Do you see what, what God's doing there? He's saying, there's a way I want you to do this, and a place I want you to do this in, Jerusalem. And David's fulfilling that. He's doing it God's way in the place that God chose for that ark to be instead of what people were doing in, 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 in earlier in Israel's history where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. Does that not sound what we're all like now? And doesn't that creep into the church? We're all doing what we want to do instead of, God, what, what would you have us do? 
See, this is, what we, this is why we do this. This is or what keeps us from doing this. We're, we're like David and the Israelites. We want God's presence, but we want his presence on our terms. We want the benefits of having the creator of the universe near to us and on our side. And yet God has said, listen, I am for you, but are you on my side? Are you following my lead? Are you coming to me my way? See, David's doing this. He's approaching God's art, God's way. And the first way we do that is according to God's word. Why do we spend so much time reading this book? Because we believe it's God's word and he's going to direct his worship. He's going to tell us how he's pleased and how we can know him as the best way possible. God's going to show us how that works. We're not going to figure it out on our own. Now, verses 4 to 10, he lists the Levites that should be involved in this. And that list is important, but it's more connected to what we're going to talk about next week. So skip down to verse 11, where he says, And David called for Zedek and Abiathar, sorry, the, the, the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Isaiah, Joel, Shemiah, Eliel, uh, Aminadab, and he said to them, You are the heads of your father's house of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may go, you may bring up the ark of the Lord your God to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us. Notice, because we did not consult him about the proper order. Do you see what David's doing there? Now, Uzzah is the one who's died. And this is the thing we need to recognize, too. Maybe something that you don't understand. You might think, that's so harsh to Uzzah. Poor Uzzah, or Uzzah, or however you say that guy's name. He had to die so that all of God's people could learn this lesson. Doesn't that sound familiar? It happened in the New Testament as well. Ananias and Sapphira had to die so that God's people could learn a lesson. Now, one of the things that, that I think we need to be clear on, that, that there's nothing in the Scripture that says definitively, that if a person dies like this, that they're lost forever. This could be a chastening unto death. It could be God saying, I want to show a serious lesson that's going to be painful for these people and their families, but it's going to be healthy for the rest of my people, and that person's still going to be in glory with me. Are you following me with that? So this is not, again, God losing his temper. This is God wanting to make a point out of mercy for the rest of us. And David saw that. And so he tells the priest, verse 14, so the priest and Levites, what do they do? They sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. What does it mean to sanctify yourself? There's an 80s song that talks about this, but I don't think it was very spiritual. What does it mean to sanctify yourself? Literally it means, to sanctify means to be set apart for God's purposes. That's what it means. The idea here is the Levites had to set themselves apart for God's purposes. And in doing so, there was a, an outward observance, often an outward abstinence of something. They would have to stop doing something. But there's also meant to be an inward change, an attitude adjustment. So they were thinking rightly about what they were doing. It wasn't just an outward conformity. Now again, we're called to this. And this is, I think, where we get it, we get it so wrong as, as believers. Because here's what we understand, especially in a church like ours. We know there's no way any of us could ever be right with God except through the finished work of Jesus. We know that the gospel is so clear that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is and always will be the eternal gospel. None of us can save ourselves. And yet, when Paul asks the rhetorical question in Romans 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Our lives say, yes. Where God says, absolutely not. Because he saves us by grace, and listen, he sanctifies us by grace. He sets us apart for his purposes, and he does so just like he did with, with, with David, using our obedience. Our obedience changes us. It doesn't merit anything from God. We're not earning points from God. We are cooperating with His supernatural work in our life when we obey. Sanctifying yourself is really just saying, God, I recognize I'm set apart for you. When Paul writes to the Corinthian church about this issue of sanctification, specifically he has to deal with the issue of sexuality. 
Because in that culture, in that first century culture, anything went basically. At least for men. Men could pretty much do whatever they wanted. Maybe rich women, but mainly men could do whatever they wanted sexually. They could have sex with boys, girls, men, women, whatever they wanted to do. And there was usually a temple they could do it in. And so when people came to Christ, Paul had to say, listen, you're now set apart for God. Your view of sexuality must change no matter what your impulses say. If you're going to be a worshiper of me, this is what has to happen. And it applied to everybody. It wasn't like the heterosexuals got to, you know, get out of jail free card. Oh, that's good. You only want to have sex with women. You continue. Baloney. It doesn't work that way. Listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6. He said, run from sexual sin. No other sin clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Listen, this is how it fits with what we're talking about today. Do you not realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who lives in you? Who was given to you by God? You do not belong to God. For God brought you, bought you, bought you, bought you, purchased you with a high price. So you must honor God with your bodies. This is the outward observance, or part of it. That we recognize God sets us apart, and he wants to teach us to live as set-apart people. Now, no, no, don't misunderstand me. We've already seen in the context of Chronicles, and we definitely see this in the whole context of Scripture. This is not about perfection. I have sinned sexually with my mind this week. I'm, I hope that doesn't stumble you. I'm just being honest. And I've had to repent of that. My mind's wandered, and I've had to say, God, forgive me. I want to be holy unto you. And I'd be willing to bet many of you guys have as well. We're honest. <laughs> and here's the reality. It's not about, listen, it's not about perfection, but it is about progress. It is about saying, God, you can change me. Christ died to change me. God, you dwell within me by your Holy Spirit. I have your presence. I want to experience that intentionally. So what do we do? We, say, we recognize God has sanctified us, and we sanctify ourselves. Are you following me? But this also, listen, this also has to do with what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in, in uh, oh, where is it? I'll get to that in a second. Sorry. Before I get to that, let me say this. This is normal Christianity. Our lives surrendered to him because we want him above all things. This is normal Christianity. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.15, he says, And Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That's normal Christianity. God's calling us to. And listen, listen, there's hope. God is enabling us to follow Him. To experience His presence. Don't you know, this is why Jesus died. He died to save us. Salvation isn't just getting out of hell. Salvation is going to God. We get to know God forever. God gives us the greatest thing He can give us. Himself. But to experience Him, we have to be sanctified. If we're going to experience God's presence, God's way, we have to be willing to be sanctified. Listen, none of you have come in this week without sin, having sinned in your life this week. Guaranteed. None of you has been sinless. Guaranteed. The issue is not whether or not, you're, whether or not you've sinned. The issue is what you've done with that. Have you repented? Have you taken that sin to the place that God dealt with it, the cross of Jesus? Because that's the mercy seat. You see, this is, this, is where, this is where this all gets summed up. Listen. When the, the Apostle John talks about the coming of Jesus, here's what he says. John chapter 1, verse 14. I'm almost done. He says, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory. It says in our English version, it's dwelled, but the word there can be translated tabernacled. Do you understand what that means? That Jesus is the tabernacle. The Spirit dwelt perfectly in Him. And when we're unified with Jesus through faith in His finished work, the Spirit dwells in us. And this is what He said the Spirit would do. Jesus taught, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. He will glorify me. 
Do you want to experience the presence of God? Do you want to know God, not just intellectually, but experientially? Glorify Jesus. That's the cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Make much of Jesus. Draw near to Jesus. Trust Jesus. And stop trusting yourself. Don't think that enthusiasm is enough. Though be enthusiastic. We're going to talk about that next week. Great place for enthusiasm. In fact, I think, worship team, we should do a song in the beginning and then save the songs for the end. And just respond to God with enthusiasm. But here's the reality. God's presence should be a priority for us. God wants so much more for us than just a ticking off of theological boxes. He wants us to know Him in truth and He wants us to experience Him in truth. He wants us to have this joy overflowing and it comes from His presence. Let's seek that right now, okay? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that these were willing to listen to this a long message and I pray your Holy Spirit would be just knitting in their hearts the truth of your word and that all that was not of you would just be forgotten. And Father, we pray that even now you would make yourself known to each of us. That Lord, where your hand is heavy on us that we need to repent, God, would we just be quick to repent because Jesus died for the sins that we've done. And Lord, where we've been where we've been foolish enough to think that we have to help you out, may we instead just humble ourselves and say, Lord, what's your way? We don't need to, to, to fix this for you or help it out. What's your way, Lord? We want to follow after you. Lord, make us people of prayer. So that when we are, are seeking you as you've revealed yourself to be and seeking what you've revealed your will to be in your word, as we see you answer, we say, God is surely working in this place. Lord, would you do that for us? And Lord, for anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that they'd be intrigued enough to ask the right questions. To, to explain their doubts and to be honest about what's keeping them from putting their faith in you, Lord. And do for them what you've done for us. Bring them to saving faith. Lord, we commit today to you. And we commit this week to you, Lord. May this be a day and a week of worship. That we experience your presence. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.